Boyhood was filmed over 12 years, and, and I think one of the best ways to describe this movie is that it's a spectacle of small moments, and it attempts to capture in a microcosm what it means to grow up as a boy in contemporary America. When the film starts, the boy who plays the main character in the movie named Mason is six years old, and the second shot of the movie is the one that you saw at the very beginning of that clip. It's Mason uh, lying on the grass, look, looking up in the sky, daydreaming. About what? We don't know, but daydreaming nonetheless. And that's something that I personally could completely identify with at that age, and perhaps uh, some of you can too. The film checks back in with Mason over the years as he experiences the full range of normal and some not-so-normal events that seem so momentous uh, in the life of a child. His family moves, And then they move again. His father and mother divorce and remarry other people. He makes and he loses friends. He suffers through school. He falls in love and gets his heart broken. And he begins to develop an identity. When the movie ends, the same boy that played Mason when he was six is an 18-year-old young man heading off to college and whatever happens beyond this movie is, is it's unlike any movie that you've ever watched in which there is a passing of time because usually in movies in which uh, you see characters age, there's a great deal of makeup work uh, involved which sometimes make the characters as they age look more creepy than they do old. But not in, this, not in this movie. All of the same actors played their roles over the 12 years that this movie was shot. They would come together for three to four days uh, every year to shoot the scenes of the movie. And we see them change physically uh, over those 12 years in the way that everybody changes physically over those years. The kids grow physically. They, they also grow emotionally. We see the adults do what adults do. They thicken <laughs> and they gray, uh, all of which creates a sense of realism that makes you forget that 12 years have passed in only 166 minutes that you've been watching the movie. And so the movie's so well acted and so well written that you feel like the characters are people uh, that you really know. Mason Jr., the boy, again, who's the main character, is played by a young man by the name of Eller Coltrane. And you see him, he rides his bike and he plays with friends. His sister, Samantha, uh, who's played by the director's daughter, Lorelai Linklater, uh, she bugs him like sisters sometimes bug their brothers. She wakes him up early one Saturday morning with a dance routine to Britney Spears, Oops, I Did It Again. And then when mom comes in because she hears all the noise, she starts crying immediately, uh, blaming her brother for all of the noise. And, you know, mom's unfair to blame her, and it was all the brother, and then he blames his sister. You know, that kind of stuff, right? Their father, Mason Sr., is played by Ethan Hawke. And Mason Sr. is a man who is still a boy hanging on to his Pontiac GTO that he had when he, was a, when he was a kid, which is no doubt, I mean, it is. It's a cool car, but it becomes kind of a symbol in the movie of a man that's hanging on to adolescence for dear life, scared and unprepared to face head-on the responsibilities of marriage and adulthood. In fact, the first time, i got to tell you, the first time I watched the movie, I found myself wondering if the title of the movie referred more to Mason Sr., than Mason Jr., right? 
And then there's their mom, uh, whose name is Olivia, played by Patricia Arquette. And like so many women in our culture, Olivia assumes the responsibility that her husband was too immature to handle. And she raises the children essentially alone. Arquette won an Oscar last Sunday night for her portrayal of a woman who uh, has no one else to rely on but herself. And while fiercely devoted, devoted to her children, she's also determined to make a better life for all of them. In one scene in which she argues with a boyfriend who can't seem to make accommodations for the fact that she has children, she says something that I would suspect that there are a number of women perhaps here who have also felt or said. She tells him that she would love the freedom to do what she wants, when she wants to do it, but she can't because she was someone's daughter and then all of a sudden someone's mother. And I'll bet there are women here who have felt that before. The thing I liked about boyhood is that it was a very honest assessment of the sweetness and the pain of family life. These aren't parents with formulaic arcs for their characters through the, through the movie. They aren't parents with storybook solutions. But their characters are very honest. And their honesty and their raw hurt and their moments of casual grace carry the shock of the reality in their lives. These are people you know. They might even be people just like you. In the process of telling this story, the movie touches on some very uh, hard, very important issues that I I wish I could talk about this morning because there's so many great things that we could talk about. Like the heroism of single motherhood. Something that's not talked about enough, I think, in church culture that Single moms are often just absolute heroes for all that they do and for all that they take on. Touches on the extended adolescence of young men in our culture. The movie touches on the cynicism that many of us accrue the longer life goes on. It touches on spousal abuse, another subject not talked about enough in churches. Talks about The movie touches on alcoholism. And it also touches on what life is like when you don't know where the money is coming from, when you don't know where it's coming from next. All of those could make great sermons, but to me, the, the, really the big question that boyhood raises is, is, is this one. This is like the central thing about the movie. It's this. How do we become who we are? Uh, maybe you could say it like this. Is our identity... Something that we freely forge, or is our identity something that just latches onto us that we don't have any control over at all? Which is it? Is it something that we freely forge, or is our identity something that just latches onto us? It's like, do, do we become who we are by f- our free, self determined decisions, or are there other factors that are out of our control that make us who we are? And this is, see, that question is very interesting to me because this is one of those places where Christian theology and the arts and human life all intersect. Because Christian theology would answer this question about how we come to be who we are and whether there's any freedom in that or not, really in two ways. First, it would make this point. It would make the point that you, none of us, you have never been completely free to determine who you become. None of us have. You have never been completely free to determine 
uh, who you become. Okay, and I, I, don't, I suspect that, that the movie Boyhood wasn't, you know, it wasn't intentionally trying to answer this very important question theologically, but I think it really does. I think it very powerfully illustrates this point that you've never been completely free to determine who you become. One of the things that this movie makes very clear is that children are incredibly dependent upon the decisions of the adults in charge of them. For instance, think about this, Mason Jr., okay? He didn't choose his dad. A man who didn't value the hard joys that come with responsibility and sacrifice. Mason Jr. didn't choose him. He also didn't choose the multiple moves that his family made to different cities. He didn't choose his mom, who loved him dearly, but made serially tragic decisions about the men whom she chose to marry. I... I found myself wanting, so wanting Olivia, this mom, to stop and get some counseling to figure out why she kept making such bad choices about men, but she never did. And let me, okay, um, this is an aside, okay, this is a parenthesis, doesn't have anything else, doesn't have anything to do with the rest of what I'm going to say, but I do, I do want to just make this point. I want to say this, and I'm going to say it uh, to ladies because I think you're the most vulnerable to this, Okay. Please understand this, ladies. You may not have had anything to do with the reasons that your relationship or your marriage fell apart, some of them. Okay? I, I, listen, I get that. It may well have all been uh, his part. Uh, and, and I get that, and I believe that that's the case often. Okay? I, I, I do, I believe that. But I do want you to realize this. You chose him. You chose him. And I would just say this, before you make another bad decision and compound one bad decision upon another, figure out why you chose a guy like that. Figure out why you chose him so that you don't choose another guy just like him next time, okay? Now, that's end of parenthesis. That was free. You don't have to pay for that at all, okay? But that's, that's, that's I just wanted to say that. Okay, end of parenthesis. Back to my point. Here's my point there. Mason Jr. didn't have any choice in so much of his life. He didn't choose his dad. He didn't choose the moves. He didn't choose his mom. He didn't choose the stepdads that he had. He didn't choose any of that. And yet, they were all a part of shaping him as a boy. And like it or not, they would all become a part of who he becomes as a man. And he would never be able to change that stuff. Right? Right? And you know this. You you get that, right? Because some of you were born, some of you were born to great parents. They loved you, they cherished you. Um, and while they were very imperfect people, they did their very best to, to raise you in a way that protected your vulnerability as a child. And yet, even though they were great parents, there are still things about them that you really don't like that are in you. No matter how hard you try to escape it, they're there in you. And I'm just, this is another side. I'm going to tell you something. It comes out, the older you get, it comes out, man. It, you can't stop it. It comes out. Things that you thought, y'all never be that way, you turn out to be just like that. Nod your heads, parents, uh, older people. If you agree with me on that, nod your heads. Say amen. amen. Okay, say it with some energy. Amen. Okay, now those of you who aren't at that point in your life yet, just know you're going to be doing that same thing in 20 years, okay? Others of you, though, didn't have such idyllic circumstances that you grew up in. 
Like Mason, you may have grown up in a single-parent home. Maybe you were shuttled back and forth between parents. Or maybe like Mason in the movie, you bonded with new step-siblings, only to have them ripped out of your life when the marriage ended. Maybe that happened more than once, as it did with Mason. Or maybe your life was chaotic from your parents' abuse of alcohol or drugs. Maybe you weren't protected from a predator in the family who sexually molested you when you were young. Or maybe one of the adult men in your life violently took out his disappointment with life on you. And you didn't choose any of that. And you didn't choose that at all. And yet, one way or another, it has shaped you as a person, hasn't it? And as much as you like to think of yourself as free and independent and self-determined, you really aren't completely those things. Not completely. You're, you're a child of someone's, and you're a child of, of someone's choices. Uh, for better or for worse, those have shaped you as a person, and you are inexor- inexorably linked to those people and those Choices that they made. They affect how you view the world, the things that you value, the things that you cherish, the things that you hold dear. They affect your mind. They affect your emotions. They affect your will. They even uh, affect your body to some extent and how it responds to circumstances that you find yourself in. You understand this, right? You get that. You get that. And so this movie, Boyhood, helps us understand that the people that we become is in part shaped by our ancestors. And that's important to understand because here's the thing. Christian theology goes even further back into your ancestry to explain the most important facet of how you become who you are. That you're not completely free to choose who you become. And here's here's what it is. Okay, here's what it says. It says that just like you were affected by your parents and the decisions that they made, a part of who you are, a part of the person that you have become has been affected by your very first ancestors that we all have in common, by the way, Adam and Eve, and one giant decision that they made. They chose to rebel against God And this instinct for rebellion, which the Bible calls sin, has been passed down through the generations to every one of you and to me. Now, I I have to tell you, I meet a lot of people who, who think that this is unfair and unreasonable. That just because Adam and Eve made a bad choice, I shouldn't have to have that affect me. And I understand the sentiment involved. I understand why they're saying that. But isn't that just how life works? Isn't that what boyhood has illustrated? That all of your ancestors, in one way or another, had a part in shaping you. Their decisions. Maybe, maybe, maybe some of your ancestors chose to move to America from another, from another country. You didn't have any choice in that. You didn't have any choice in their genetics that have affected you. Their personal issues, their struggles, their biases, their worldviews, their decisions. You had no choice in any of that. 
All of that's been passed down to you in some way, shape, or form. And, and in the same way, this common instinct for rebellion against God, which the Bible calls sin, has been passed down to you uh, too. And in fact, when you think about who you've become as a person and, and how you're not completely free, just think about this. Listen to this. The Bible even goes to, so far as to say that you are a slave to this instinct to rebel against God. Paul In the New Testament, Romans chapter 6, verse 6, he says it this way. I think this is fascinating. He says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, he's talking about Christ here, so that the body, notice what he says, I've got it emphasized, ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be, and there it is, slaves to sin. Do you see it? Do you see it? It's saying that none of us are as free and self-determined as we think we are. All of us have inherited this instinct for rebellion against God that the Bible calls sin. And it's so much a part of us, and it's so much a part of who we become, that we are slaves to it. Okay, So so Christian theology would say that that as, as it relates to who you become, no one's completely free to determine who you become. In fact, you're slaves. You're slaves to sin. All of us are. Okay, But Christian theology would go even further. Not only have you never been completely free to determine who you become, it would also say that your identity, who you've become, has been shaped by this slavery to sin. Your identity has been shaped by this slavery to sin. In other words, the person that you've become has been shaped by slavery to sin. Now, now let me just tell you something, uh, just again, on a personal level. This this concept of slavery to sin is not something that resonated with me uh, for many years. I would read that and it just, you know how sometimes you read something and it just connects with you and you're like, yeah, I get that. Well, this is one of those things that for many, many years of my own Christian experience did not connect for me. I just never felt like, yeah, I, I get that. I get that point. It, it, didn't, it, was, it was counterintuitive to me because I thought of myself, probably like many of you did, I thought of myself as perfectly and absolutely free. Whatever choices I made about my life, good or bad, I chose them because I wanted to choose them. And I would bet that there are many of you who feel the same way. You don't feel like a slave to anything. But here's my question for you. How would you know if you were a slave to something? How how would you know? Because think about this, okay? Just think about this. Do you think fish feel like slaves to water? I mean, of course not. How would they feel like slaves to water? They don't know anything different. They have no experience of life without water to think that life with water all the time is abnormal. They don't know that. It's just how their life is. Water's perfectly natural to them. All of the activities of their lives happen in the domain of water. If fish dream, all of their dreams include water. That's just the way life is. They eat in water. They move in water. I don't know if you know this, but all their favorite movies are about water. I checked. I did some research on this. Three top movies of fish. Third, Finding Nemo. Second, Jaws. And number one, favorite movie of fish everywhere? You guessed it, Waterworld. That's their favorite movies everywhere. That's, that's what they like because water, life in water is very natural to them. It's all they know. This is why you don't realize that a part of who you've become has been shaped by your slavery to sin because it's all that you know. It's been with you 
from the moment that you were born. And it has shaped you more than anything else in your life. This instinct for rebellion that you didn't choose, but that you have inherited from your very first ancestors, has been the single most important factor in shaping the person that you have become. This is how Christian theology would answer the question, how do we become the people that we become? The single most important factor in shaping who you've become is this thing that you inherited from your ancestors, this instinct for rebellion called sin. You're a slave to it. And ironically, you think you're free all the while that you're a slave to this thing called sin. Now look, I I think it's important to note, when a person is a slave, that doesn't mean that there aren't some relatively free decisions they can make. There are some relatively free decisions they can make. But slavery, if you think about what slavery does, it severely limits the range of decisions that you can make, right? And here's what I mean by that. Sin's defining characteristic, the thing that you are a slave to, that you were born with, that you inherited from your ancestors, is this. It's just this. I am the most important person in the universe. That's the defining characteristic of sin. Me. I am the most important person in the universe. Now, as I said, there are some relatively free decisions that you can make in your life about where you might live and and what you want to do for a living and the amount of education you're going to get. You know, those kinds of things. But every decision in your life flows out of this one central attitude that rules your life that I am the most important person in the universe. You are a slave to that attitude. You can't change it. It affects everything you do. And this attitude, this worldview, has shaped your identity more than anything else. And so Christian theology would answer the question that boyhood poses about how we become the people we are by saying that, yes, there is a sense in which you've made some relatively free decisions in in your life that have made you into the person that you are. But all of those decisions flow out of this instinct you were born with that says you are the most important person in the universe. Near the end of the movie... Because this movie, because the people who made the movie, uh, even though they they were great artists and and great people, uh, they didn't write it from a Christian worldview, right? So there's a certain cynicism that creeps into every character's life. Olivia, the mom, she says as as Mason is getting ready to leave for college, she, she, she makes this statement. She, she says, I always thought there would be more to life than there is. You, you've probably felt that too before. Mason asks his dad in a, in a very telling scene. He, said, he, he looks around. You know, he's, 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 not a, he's not looking at life through the eyes of a child anymore with all of the childhood wonder, but he's looking at, the li- at life 
from the perspective of an 18-year-old who's been through some very hard things. And he asks his dad this question. He says, he says, what's the point of everything? And his dad tells him, he says, look, son, everyone's just winging it. Many of the critics uh, who reviewed the movie left feeling great hope about the two kids in the movie. And they kept, they, you know, they, if you read the critics, they always talk about, oh, you know, look at how resilient the kids were. They made it through it. Um, but I didn't, I, did, I didn't leave the movie with great hope about the kids. I, in fact, I will tell you, I left feeling that they were deeply wounded. And because they, you know, because they had no hope, uh, I felt like that, that they themselves had become highly cynical as they went through the movie. I found myself very concerned about their future. Samantha seemed to be making, uh, the sister, she seemed to be making the same decisions with boys that her mother had always made with men. And when we last see Mason Jr. in the movie, uh, he's high uh, after eating a pot brownie. That I, th- I think that's what it was, a, high, a pot brownie. Was, if it wasn't a pot brownie, it was something else. But it, he's high on something. And presumably trying to escape the pain of a life that has been very hard at 18. I, you know, I had a, once had a counselor friend who specialized in treating people uh, who were addicted to drugs, and, and he said this to me one time. He just said, Jeff, happy people don't do drugs. There's a cynicism and a hopelessness at the end of the movie that really makes perfect sense. When you understand that Everyone in the world is a slave to this attitude that says, I am the most important person in the universe. What happens when everyone alive thinks that they're the most important person in the universe? What happens? On a macro scale, pretty much what you see happening in the world that we live in today. War between nations, between races, between genders. What happens when everyone in your relational world thinks that they're the most important person in the universe? Pretty much the relational world that Mason Jr. and his sister Samantha were born into. Near the end of his life, the great French writer and philosopher Albert Camus, who had written with great hope about the human condition and the human struggle for many years, He ended his career with this advice to the human family. He said, stop hoping. It hurts too much. Think clearly. Stop hoping. And that makes perfect sense, frankly. If you just look at the human race, and if the human race is all there is, that makes perfect sense. Because every one of us live this life of slavery to the attitude that I'm the most important person in the universe. And in fact, I will tell you something. In the section of Scripture in which the Bible declares that we're all slaves to this thing called sin, the writer of that section of Scripture comes to the same conclusion that Albert Camus uh, came to. He says this. The Apostle Paul, he's writing the same section of Scripture. He writes this. What a wretched man that I am. And he looks at himself and he says, what a wretched man that I am. And of course, by extension, we're all, uh, you know, what a wretched collection of humans we are. 
And he says, who will rescue me from this body that is dominated by sin and death? And by death, he's talking not just about physical death, but he's talking about the, what does life look like when everyone is committed to themselves and themselves only? What, is that, what does that life look like? Well, it's, 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 it's corrosive. It's destructive. It's, it's essentially death. And he says, who will rescue me from this body that is dominated by sin and death? And by extension, again, who will rescue us as a human race from these lives that are dominated by sin and death? And that's where Camus ends. He says, nobody. Stop hoping. It hurts too much. There is no hope. But the Apostle Paul doesn't end there. He rejoices in great hope. Now, I want you to notice, he doesn't rejoice in a list of rules. He doesn't say, if you follow these rules, the human race is going to be fine. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, here's a code of conduct. You guys do that, and boy, everything's going to be okay. He doesn't do that. He doesn't rejoice in, in, in rules, laws, codes of conduct, principles. He doesn't rejoice in that. He rejoices in a person, interestingly enough. The ultimate human who also happened to be God. And he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through, and he delivers us as a human race through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what's so ironic about this is that Jesus Christ was the most important person in the universe. And yet the most important person in the universe didn't consider his needs more important than yours. He gave it all. He gave his life so that you could be rescued from this slavery to sin. That's the irony of the whole thing. The most important person in the universe sacrificed his life for you and for me. And Paul says, were it not for that, what a wretched people we would be. No one could possibly rescue us from our depravity and our slavery. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord who has rescued us from our slavery to sin. See, here's the thing, folks. You don't need a list of rules. You don't need a code of conduct. What you need is a person, one person, who was God. You didn't need a teacher you needed a Savior, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who hung on a cross to rescue humanity from their slavery to sin. And just as sin has been the most important thing in shaping the person that you have become, so when you trust, when you believe in Jesus, so Jesus can become the most important person that affects the person that you can become. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we celebrate you today. We do not celebrate a list of rules. We don't celebrate a code of conduct. We celebrate you, a person who paid it all, who gave it all for the sins of humanity so that we could be rescued when we believe upon you, that we could be rescued from our slavery to sin. 
Lord, I pray for those that are here today that may never have heard that before. I pray that today that the power of your Spirit would make that very real to them in a way that I cannot. That you would take that deep down into their soul, that it would become something that festers, that just grows, that, that, that continues to irritate until they come to a realization that, yes, I need to believe in Jesus because I, too, am a slave to sin. Lord, would you make that happen? For those of us who know this, who have responded, who have believed in you, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us a passion to become the people that you would have us become, that we would let you, not the conceit and the arrogance of humanity, but that we would let you become the the person who shapes us the most into the people that we want to become. We want to become more like you. We thank you for this truth. We exalt you, Lord Jesus Christ, in you alone. And it's in your name we worship and pray. Amen.